Welcome to the Policy and Planner English Podcast, or should I say, the audiobook version of the report of the audio-only Telephone Services Working Group, pursuant to Act 140 of the Vermont State Legislature. Because that's what we're discussing here. This report recommends how Vermont should reimburse audio-only healthcare services, which is exciting enough that we took a break from our podcast holiday to release this special edition. I'm your host, Helen Laban, and I'm going to give a lengthier disclaimer this episode because I am also a registered lobbyist representing the members of my state primary care association, including the federally qualified health centers, free and referral clinics, Planned Parenthood clinics, and the area health education centers. Our members serve about a third of all Vermonters for primary care. In the working group process, I was advocating for our members, alongside other providers, payers, and patient advocates. Ultimately, over 80 people were involved. This commentary summarizes the debate and conclusions. If you want to know the details on any one group's starting position, you can read the full report linked in the show notes at plainerenglish.org. Disclaimer is in place. On with the episode. On December 1st, the Department of Financial Regulation, or DFR, released a working group report on recommendations for reimbursing audio-only telemedicine in Vermont after the end of the public health emergency. One thing that's going to be a little confusing here is telemedicine versus telehealth. There were telephone-based services provided prior to COVID-19, but they were narrowly defined. COVID brought in a new world of audio-only telemedicine, which said essentially that if a clinician could perform a health service using the telephone and the patient agreed to use the telephone, then that would be reimbursable, just like it is for using an audiovisual platform. The question then was whether that was a pandemic-only sort of situation or whether Vermont should extend the broader telephone option past the end of the emergency. A critical issue wrapped into all of this is the digital divide. We'll start there because it's the foundation of the debate. When I say digital divide, what I mean is the gap created by residences that lack broadband access, lack equipment for broadband access, can't afford broadband, or do not feel comfortable engaging online, for example, because they don't have strong digital literacy. The working group's mandate was not to solve the digital divide. And it's important to point out that authorizing audio-only telemedicine does not solve the digital divide. For one thing, not being able to access the online world has serious repercussions independent of what it means for healthcare. Go ahead and try searching for a job or accessing education without using the internet. It's possible, but it's certainly limiting. We need to do the right thing in recognizing telecommunications as an essential service. Digital divide issues aren't the only reason to offer audio-only care. Sometimes it's simply the preferred tool for treatment. Nonetheless, If everyone had frictionless access to audiovisual connections with healthcare providers, we'd be having a different conversation. So, closing the digital divide was recommendation number one, even if it was technically beyond our working group scope. Next, in the style of mystery writer Anthony Horowitz, the working group report contains a book within a book. The DFR group reported on reimbursement recommendations, but couldn't comment on reimbursement without also analyzing questions about quality of care when delivered in an audio-only format. So, the Vermont Program for Quality in Healthcare, or VPQHC, included an additional report on clinical quality. I'll start with the quality questions. We know there are plenty of medical services that self-evidently require a physical exam or close visual inspection, so we'll give clinicians credit and assume they won't attempt any of those over the phone. There's also a lot of clinical evidence around telemedicine that uses both audio and visual connections. 
That research can help clarify where we draw the line on needing the physical exam component. Plus, in 2021, coding rules around levels of office visit changed to be based on time and medical decision-making, not physical examination. All good. Matt leaves us with concern about a subset of services where a physical exam is not needed, but a visual connection is needed. A clinician needs to reach the same standard of care for any service they perform, regardless of modality. So in particular, we're concerned about services where a clinician can't tell that a visual connection should be required. We're not going to have strong evidence on this topic anytime soon. Audio-only telemedicine visits happened at scale only during a catastrophic pandemic, which means that the results are going to be confounded by a whole bunch of other factors. They might offer useful insights for future pandemics, but right now we're interested in everyday healthcare. Additionally, because of the way visits were recorded during the pandemic, we can't reliably sort out what was performed with audio-visual and what was performed with audio-only. Individual healthcare systems may have set records up in a way that yielded this data, but an analysis of all Vermont claims, for example, won't produce anything usable. So if we got the data and we were able to account for all other factors, should we expect to see a pattern of worse outcomes for telephone-based treatment? One reason why we might see this is essentially that clinicians don't know what they don't know. Therefore, we would want them to gather as much input as possible during an encounter to reach a final diagnosis, not rely on patients' reporting of all relevant symptoms. There are also reasons to suspect we might see the telephone as something that improves clinical outcomes. Visual cues can lead us astray. For example, there's a 2017 study from Yale showing emotion is easier to discern from voice only. Research is going on now to determine if clinicians are better at asking questions and listening to patients in an audio-only environment. And of course, there's plenty of research on unconscious bias related to how someone looks. So we may see audio-only emerging as the better tool in some applications. Across all applications, some argue that the information-gathering example is emphasizing the wrong comparison. The correct comparison may not be what happens in an audio appointment versus audio-visual versus in-person. The correct comparison may be audio appointment versus nothing at all. Information received over the phone is a lot better than patients opting out of care altogether because they don't have a viable way to connect. The third and broader theory for why we might see strong clinical results from audio-only telemedicine is the idea that the clinician's job is not to gather all input needed for a final diagnosis in the first encounter, but rather to collect enough information to direct patients to the correct next step. This is already accepted outside of telehealth. I can't remember the last time I went to the doctor with a complaint and they didn't require a blood test, x-ray, MRI, or some other diagnostic before they could make the correct decision. And in fact, telehealth tools can make this process run more efficiently. Some practices are setting up nurse lines as a first stop call to help patients decide if they need a full appointment or can have their problem resolved over the phone. A final note on the quality discussion is that there's a gray area between what belongs in reimbursement policy, which was the focus of the working group, and what is part of supporting implementation. Is it the role of the insurance companies to dictate the training required for clinicians implementing telehealth? How far should payers reach in setting the workflows for every practice? Where do we draw the line on payer control of operations and healthcare? Obviously, it's not at zero. Because we have credentialing, and we have rules around patient-informed consent to telehealth and consent to be billed and when you need to obtain those consents. The providers would argue that we shouldn't go further. Payers don't agree. 
The final working group language was encouraging of training, and we left the exact mechanism for another day, recognizing that a lot of places skilled in telehealth training are coming up with options, so we don't feel that Vermont needs to recreate work already happening. That's a brief outline of differing perspectives on the quality of audio-only telemedicine, and obviously there's a lot more that could be discussed. I want to highlight points of agreement. We agree that future coding and record-keeping should indicate audio-only services, that we should support practices in setting up telehealth workflows that use audio only when appropriate, but do not automatically default to the telephone. We support training opportunities, and we reaffirm that the same standard of care applies to telephone-based services. The standard doesn't change when you change modalities. Which brings us to folks getting paid. Here's the starting position of the providers. Keep in place the pandemic time rules, where all services that can be delivered over the phone are covered and they're covered at parity to if they'd been delivered in person. There are a couple of reasons why this proposal wasn't going to fly. As a representative of the healthcare providers, I believe our proposal was flawless. But the consensus group position was not that provider associations should automatically be given everything they request. I'm going to bucket the payment issues into three categories. First, how we shape behavior related to using audio only. Second, how we think about the cost of delivering these services. And third, whether we are trying to match an old payment system to a delivery system that's fundamentally different and will never align. I call that last one the fool's errand category. A lot of my daily activities belong in there. The first, shaping behavior, builds directly from the quality conversation. The simple version of the argument against parity payment is that audio only is less good than in-person or audiovisual care, and therefore providers should be paid less. Even if we accept the starting premise about quality, discounting audio-only services might disincentivize providers from offering them, but it also incentivizes patients to demand the cheaper option. And in fact, we saw this prior to the pandemic, with patients calling at the end of office hours for advice, since that advice is generally free. A bigger issue is that if we, as a state, want healthcare practices to address audio only as being bundled into the larger picture of digital divide and barriers to healthcare access, then that's very challenging and time-consuming work and would merit higher payment, not lower payment. Once you start bundling in those larger considerations, you edge over into the third category of cost considerations, which is that the fee-for-service payment systems simply don't match up with the work being done. The next issue is cost. Here, I'm going to divide the universe of healthcare costs into staff time and overhead. I'm also going to assume that audio only is being implemented well, that the practices are truly trying to make it equivalent to in-person options. There's schedulers, there's medical assistants screening patients, there's explanation of how the system works, there's detailed clinical note-taking, and in particular, there may be extra time as clinicians talk through symptoms in greater detail. This thoughtfully implemented system today does not necessarily have any savings in staff time. In the future, staff time may shift because we may get more efficient with how we use the range of technology tools available. For example, with appropriate screening that helps us direct patients more effectively and efficiently to the correct provider, or using audio only for short check-ins that catch problems early and reduce the laundry list of concerns when there's a traditional in-office visit. We want greater efficiency, but right now, that's a vision for the future, and underinvesting in the current state of telehealth makes that future less likely. Overhead is a similar story. Healthcare practices today have a lot of sunk costs in buildings, parking lots, the bricks and mortar part of delivering care. 
All visits carry those costs, even if they didn't send a patient to the building. In the future, strategically deploying telehealth can help handle more patients without needing to expand the physical footprint of a healthcare practice. That is the savings, but it's in the future. And again, if we don't invest today and allow telehealth to cover today's costs, we'll never reach that future. We're bending the cost curve, not magically making costs disappear. The overhead question is complicated by the existence of healthcare services that are fully virtual. They never had those sunk costs, and so they can drop that from their pricing equation right out of the gate. Vermont's payment parity rules carve out third-party telemedicine vendors who are contracting with payers. They can receive less. Providers have complicated feelings about this situation. Mostly, it's negative feelings. Overall, fragmenting care is a problem, and we like to keep a patient with a medical home. On the other hand, if that medical home is struggling to manage patient load, and some of the simpler cases can be sent to a telemedicine provider, thus freeing up clinicians to see patients who require in-person care more promptly, then everyone wins. For federally qualified health centers, this situation is not necessarily great, because their payment system relies on a historic benchmark of the average cost of care for their patients. If you start sending the quick and easy cases elsewhere and keep only complex, time-consuming cases, then that benchmark now significantly underestimates your cost. Plus, providers get penalized in the quality measures if they have fewer in-person encounters with patients, even if those patients want to be seen through telehealth. It's an outdated system. Do you see how all these conversations seem to point to the fact that the fee-for-service payment system we have for in-person care today is failing to match with the needs of virtual care in the future, and that the future is kind of nowish? The Vermont Working Group noticed the same thing. Which brings us towards the end of our long and winding road, but trust me, a much, much shorter road than the Working Group's full process, to the final conclusion around value-based payment for audio-only telehealth. Healthcare providers have dealt with a lot of change in 2020, most of it extremely stressful. They're still responding to COVID-19. Even if we square away the vaccine for everyone, which we won't for a while, they'll still be dealing with deferred care, mental health repercussions, impacts on workforce, and healthcare's role in responding to basic needs like food access. If we had the perfect audio-only telemedicine reimbursement system designed and ready to go tomorrow, which we don't, there would still be an argument for not changing one more thing if we don't have to. So step number one is to keep parity payment for at least two more years while we sort everything out. Step number two is to recognize that audio-only telemedicine is the case study that best exemplifies what's broken in healthcare reimbursement at the primary care level. Telephone-based services, taken broadly, encompass a lot of good practices that are not tied to the old model of in-person visits. The classic example is chronic care management, where patients can build a plan with their care team and then have frequent check-ins by phone to monitor progress throughout the year, not just through occasional office visits. Substance use disorder treatments, where transportation has been a crippling barrier in rural places, are another example of where blended options can make a significant difference. Remote patient monitoring lets some conditions be treated at home, not the hospital. None of these are built on the traditional concept of a doctor's office visit and so reimbursement can't be set based on the assumption of simply swapping in telemedicine for in-person visits in a one-for-one way. Also, as we've already discussed, audio-only services are closely connected to barriers to access and health equity concerns. Working through those with patients is both an important goal and one not fully captured in typical fee-for-service reimbursement structures. 
On the positive side, telephone-based services can also help address a range of social factors in health. For example, if they're used for more effective screening prior to an appointment, something we've discussed in our food access episodes. Basically, whenever there's a promise of a better system of doing business in healthcare, there are two payment questions. What's going to pay for the transition to this new way of doing business? And once we get there, will there be a sustainable reimbursement ongoing? Innovators often like to claim that the old way of doing things can't possibly work. It's time to throw everything out and start again. In this instance, it does appear that the old systems of reimbursement legitimately do not match current needs, which is why the DFR Working Group ultimately recommended that we need a value-based payment model for audio only and set a deadline of January 1st, 2024 for designing this option. January 1st, 2024 isn't that far away. And if you think that the rest of the working group is cheerful about the fact that we may have locked ourselves into an endless work cycle for the next several years, let me just say the unwritten conclusion of the working group is that the details of telehealth reimbursement systems are enough to break the spirit of even the most seasoned policy professional. Even my own enthusiasm dimmed at moments. But we continue on, determined to find a way to make healthcare accessible to all Vermonters. You can join us for the sequels, when they're published, right here on the Policy in Plainer English podcast. Thank you.